All right, folks, welcome back to the latest Mount West Wire podcast. Week one recap. We're here. We made it. And, Matt, we have 12 games to go over. I'm Jeremy Moss. It's Matt Kennerly, obviously. Our website. I, I'm not going to. I can't just bypass the important stuff. Facebook, Mount West Wire, MWCWire.com, College Football News. That's us. And we have a dozen games to go through, and we're hoping not to make this a five hour show. We do have a lot more to talk about than we thought we would, though. Yeah, there was, what, seven FCS games, and we thought, oh, we'll just skip over probably 90% of those, but thank you to uh, Newton Jr. and some other games we have a lot to talk about. Yeah, so let's let's not waste a lot of time. Let's jump into it. We start on Friday night, and I can um, I apologize because I picked the Rams to do very good, to be very good this year, and, well, my prediction of them winning the conference and other things... Uh, might be up at smoke. Might be. Okay. Okay. So let's let's start with that. Let's start with the Rocky Mountain Showdown because you know obviously yeah. they lost seventeen to three, but you know I didn't get a chance to watch the game, but I I was following it on Twitter, and you know among the the Rams fans and among the Colorado State and even some of the Colorado writers like in Denver and in Boulder. I was getting a very distinct sense of how the game went. So let's talk about that a little bit. So do you want to talk with the um, phantom pass interference calls, or what do you want to start with? Yeah, let's start with that. Like, Because I didn't get to see it. I haven't had a chance to go back and watch any highlights or anything like that. So I want to ask you, as someone who did watch the game... Everybody was saying the Rams were getting screwed. So I think first and foremost, do you agree with that? The pass interference calls against, I believe, all three were against Michael Gallup. No, one was against um, Johnson, um, Olabasi Johnson. Yes, they were very, very questionable. It's like to get called for offensive offensive pass interference, it, it takes a little bit of work. Usually, it's the uh, push off that that gets you. Mm-hmm. It's like if you ever watched the, uh, I'd always watch the Dallas Cowboys years ago with Michael Irvin, and I know NFL is a bit different, but he was a master at being able to create separation, but not really push off against somebody. Like he'll have his hands up near his chest so that when he does go for the ball, because if you're going for the ball, you can kind of go through a defender. They're not going to call it, but he would sort of use that as a push off, which it's within the rule, but it's kind of uh, taking advantage of the rule where you can. He's a big guy, so he'd go up for a pass. And if both guys are going for it, they're not going to call it because they're both technically making contact. Mm-hmm. Other times you'll see around the hips, that type of stuff. But these were, like, nothing. They, they were ridiculous. There was one that maybe could have been something, but it, it's like the tickiest tack of calls. And then there's also another call that was a touchdown, not the offensive P.I. There was a illegal hand to the face. I get there's probably a penalty on every football play out there, no matter where you want. If you want to look close enough, you'll find a penalty. This was on the, I forget, forget what touchdown, because there's 14 points t- technically taken off the board. Mm-hmm. Not that would have made a difference in the game, because it might have if, if they if Rams got one of those. Who knows? It could have made a difference. I'm not saying that's why they lost, because the Rams couldn't run the ball to save their life, really. And so that that's a big deal as well. So you can't just blame a couple of offensive PIs that are very questionable, but... And this other penalty, they saw legal hands to the face. They called it on the... It's going to be an offensive lineman, typically. It's usually what it sounds. You hit a guy in the... It's not a face mask. You block a guy in the face. Or mm-hmm. the helmet or head. This one play was uh, by the right guard. And, like, nowhere near the play. It's not like... 
I guess you could call it, but it's not like he was going to be able to – he impeded him from making a play, from getting to Nick Stevens, mm-hmm. whoever was defending him, or, or making a tackle. It, and it wasn't even blatantly obvious either. Usually it's like the head slap in the face you'll see, or they will – because you'll see offensive linemen block. They'll go underneath the face mask a little bit. Even defensive linemen, they'll get in the face. As long as you're not really pushing or pulling or tugging, you're not going to call it. But that was another call. But there are a few where they, they were just on big plays. It wasn't – and it was plays where they caught the ball. It's not like, oh, he – dropped the ball or something. These are all plays that were a positive plays for the Rams, and they were extremely questionable. And I would say probably two of the three should not have been called. One, maybe because he grabbed his hip sort of. I think that was one of the uh, receptions on for Michael Gallup. But it's just it's it's bogus what, what happened. And, again, the outcome may not have been any different because the Rams' offense was stuttering so bad. But they took points off the board. And it was a big deal in the game, and they were there was nothing to be called for these penalties. They were normal football. Some you could there's some there's plenty of separation where there'd be no way for him to make a play, a push off, or any sort of offensive pi. Yeah, and and that was kind of the would be my next question is because in looking at the drive chart, you can see that they had you know a couple of golden opportunities to kind of gain momentum in the game. You know, Kevin Nutt, you know, in the box score had two interceptions, two really big plays. But in both instances, they you know had to, they eventually ended those drives with turnovers on downs. So my question to you would be like, how much overlap was there between these calls that were getting made, and you know the Rams just not taking advantage of opportunities? There's a couple of things like the fourth and two. Like I'm trying to remember the exact situations, but there were times where like here's a prime example: uh, the Buffs had one of the interceptions that you mentioned. It's seventeen to three. Interception. Rams are at midfield essentially. They're too close to punt and too far for field goals. They go for the fourth and two, and that was not a penalty call because it's just a incomplete pass. But they did miss chances too. It's not you can't only blame like those couple penalties. If you're at fourth and two, and when you know you can't run the ball and you make a pass, and it doesn't happen. That's kind of on you a little mm-hmm. bit. Or when you have a 14 play drive that ends in zero points. When it's on fourth and. 23 gets I get sacked everything you're moving down the field but you have a 13 play drive you're actually moving the ball positively I think this is right before the half right uh well somewhere late first quarter sorry and you get nothing it's like what are you doing there was plenty of t- plenty of opportunities to get points on this in this game and a couple of drives but if you look overall it's like there's three plays of fumble for the Rams six plays a punt they had interceptions too many turnovers in this game the offense was just shut down for the most part they were it just happened to be when those penalties were called, they were big plays. And that's what people are looking at, which rightfully so. But it's it's kind of questionable. You made, did you make the big play because of the, of the penalty that was called? Probably not, but it just happened to be on those explosive plays where they were called back. Yeah, I mean, it seems like one really significant turning point was one of those big penalties where, you know, Stevens had completed a 40-yard pass to Johnson, you know, which would have gotten the Rams inside the red zone. And it was erased on a personal foul. And then the very next play is when Stevens throws his second interception of the game. So, you know, at that point, I believe they're, they're only down, like, what, 10-3 to at that point? Or were they down 17? They were still down 17-3. But assuming, you know, that play doesn't go against them, you know, that's the kind of thing that changes the entire tenor of a ball game. Like, if you feel like you're playing against, you know, 11-12 on 12 or 11-14 on 14 or something like that, you know, I can I can sympathize, but you know, even more than that, 
what stands out to me is the fact that they weren't really able to get the run game going. And when you consider how things unfolded last week against Oregon State, when as a team you can only manage 88 yards, that's just not going to get it done. I don't think this is the kind of team that's built to have everything on Stevens' shoulders. And, you know, he didn't have any touchdowns, obviously. He had a couple of big plays that were erased. But I don't think Colorado State's the type of team that wants to throw the ball 47 times trying to come from behind. No, they no, they don't. And it was only, like, this 14-point gap seemed huge because that's not mm-hmm. a lot of points. It's only two touchdowns. There was no points in the second yeah. half. And that's and we knew the Buffs' defense would be better, but after who they lost, we didn't think they'd be that much. I mean, we they we didn't think they'd be as good as last year, which they weren't, but we figured the Rams – the way they've been playing to hold them to only three points, that's a pretty good accomplishment. And one thing, too, like there's that big matchup with Oliver and Gallup. Gallup didn't do anything overly special. And there's one player, remember, where dude, it was it looked to be a touchdown, deep pass. It, it was sort of double. There's two guys on Gallup. Gallup had a step on both defenders. Isaiah Oliver was was close enough. Like it was basically if you throw stride for stride, he just he just outrun you because they're like about a yard behind mm-hmm. you but close enough to make a play. Oliver jumps in the end zone, just puts his hand out there. It happens to make a good play on him, but he just sticks his hand up trying to do anything, knocks the ball, hits off his hand, out of bounds, and the end zone incomplete pass. That could have been a big touchdown play as well. So there's chances, even without the penalties, to make it closer. Like the turnovers they have, but that was a big play. I remember a deep pass that was on target. Oliver just happened to get the extension, was close enough to time it just right, and Happen to get a hand on the ball. Yeah, and I mean, in a lot of other respects, you can see that the Rams kind of dominated this game. You know, they ended up with five sacks of Montez. I believe it was, you know, one, you know, five different guys ended up with a sack. You know, they outgained them by about 50 yards as far as total offense. You know, Ryan Stonehouse, as a punter, had a really good game. Was, you know, had four different, or three different kicks inside the 20. Was, you know, pinning Colorado back, you know, fairly deep into their own zone more often than not you know they were 9 of 18 on third downs which was really good and I think that maybe that was undercut a little bit by the fact that they were over 3 on fourth down yep. so you could see that they were they were doing a lot right in this game and if it wasn't for those penalties it probably should have been a lot different yeah, ten like the Rams, the Buffs had their own penalty issue, seven for fifty nine, but ten for one twenty. You can't, you can't win to do, you can't win when that happens. You can't win when you can not even get three yards per carry running the ball, and you lose the turnover margin. They had more, like I said, like when you look at the numbers, like when you kind of go stat for stat, which isn't everything, but they were pretty comparable. They were both fifty percent on third down, like you mentioned. The fourth down was a big deal, but the. Uh, interceptions turnovers is just a one turnover difference time possession basically the same yards for the game actually favor the rams there are advantages for both sides so i'm not going to go back and say those two ref calls or three ref calls made the difference because the rams had other chances to do that and if you can't run the ball i can't blame you it's like steven throwing for 309 yards is good but not on that many attempts so if if you're csu if you're mike bobo and the rest of the team like what do you what do you try to take away from this? Look at the second half. Your de- your defense played played well. I would give them outside of uh, I don't know. They gave up 140 yards to, in the, on the ground to Philip Lindsay. So I would just say that they they 
I don't know. They, they passed the ball okay, but 49% isn't good enough. Be smarter, I guess, because think of it, 10 penalties. If three of those were very questionable, it still leaves you seven penalties for about 80 yards. That's still a lot of penalties. I mean, and it, but if you look back at you know the last couple of years, you know there were there were a couple of games both in 2015 and 2016 where they were hit with a rash of penalties. Generally speaking, though, they haven't really been known as a as a heavily penalized team. They were actually you know below average, which is to say, or actually above average rather in in penalties. You know, picked up on both sides of the ball. So. You know, I think... I would say defense. Yeah. Defense. Five sacks and eight TFLs is really good. Yeah, because, I mean, it's not necessarily a matter of discipline or anything like that. It's just a matter of, you know, take I think just taking better advantage of the opportunities that you have and then, you know, shoring up both the run defense and the running aim. We'll see. I, so, does this change your perception too much on CSU at all? I mean, like how much would you cons- say? Like, yeah, how much would you say? Like, what's the difference after this game? Like, I was extremely high. I figured they could beat the Buffs, have no issues, maybe win like I forget what I said, like twenty eight, twenty something like that. I also expected a lot of points. Most people thought over under was seventy points in this game. So, where mm-hmm. do you see the Rams going forward? Like, does it change you your perception of them maybe winning the division still? I mean, I'm a little concerned by the fact that Colorado State was able to shut, or rather, Colorado was able to shut down the Rams' running game. I think if anything, that could make them vulnerable against front sevens that looked pretty good in this past weekend. You know, you know, Air Force looked a little bit tougher on defense than I think a lot of us expected. Boise State's definitely going to be a factor. You know, they're going to need to be balanced in order to win this division and, and take this season as far as they want it to take, as far as they want to take it. Do you think this is the best defense they'll face all year, Colorado? That's hard to say. Because of Boise, course, like know, said, Boise looked really good. Yeah, because I mean, it's it's one game, so it's hard to draw yeah. any you know far-reaching conclusions from it. I think Colorado State will be fine because you know, fingers crossed, they won't run up against this kind of referee situation like this in the future. Well, I guess they do have Alabama, so I should just wipe it off the board after thinking about it for half a second. <laughs> yeah, they'll just have to you know go take out this frustration on Abilene Christian next Saturday. And if they there do that, go. then I think that, you know, all things will feel normal heading into the Alabama game after that. Yeah. All right, let's move on because we spent way too much time on one game and we have 11 more to go through. Let's do it. Which is fine. Okay, we got Utah State-Wisconsin, number nine Badgers. I was watching this game a bit. I was kind of going back and forth. I'm like, hey, Utah State, you're up 10-0. to Interesting. Well, 59-10. <laughs> Badgers figured something out and said, see ya. And... Here's what my thoughts about that game. Myers threw about as much as I thought he would. This game basically played out how I thought it would be for the most part. Myers would throw a ton. Running game would be uh, be under underwhelming, but I would I did expect the D de- and a million receivers would catch a pass, which was the case. And I but I figured the defense would be better because they threw how many receivers caught a ball? Was this twelve receivers here? There's somebody who had yes. zero receptions for six yards. How'd that happen? That is a very good question. <laughs> 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. If I include him, uh, who is it, uh, Robert Costanda, that's thir- 12 guys, 13 guys who catch a pass. Mm-hmm. And the one hunt running back caught four of those. Okay, but see, do you, do you, do you see the uh, 
Do you see the long plays? That's good. 40, 36. Yeah, a couple long passing plays there. No, but see, here's the thing. Like, beyond that, you know, one of the things that we talked about in the preview for this game is that Utah State was going to have to find a way to make plays down the field. And if you just look at the guys who caught receptions, yes, Jaron Colston Green had one catch for 40 yards. That's one, fine. Yeah. You know, Savon Scarver had one catch for 36 yards. That's fine. But, I mean, look at the guys above them. You know, Lawan Hunt was the team's leading receiver. Four catches, 14 yards. Gerald Bright, three catches, 23 yards. Long of 13. They weren't able to find those plays that I was worried about them not being able to find. And Myers, yeah, he threw the ball 41 times. Had 219 yards. That's like 5.3 yards per attempt, which is just not going to get it done in this kind of up-tempo offense that relies on a kind of finding quick strikes, finding opportunities in space and things like that. And, you know, I was looking very closely at the at the numbers early on when they were building that lead, and they just weren't moving the ball like I hoped they would. And so when Wisconsin kind of came storming back after being down 10 nothing early, I can't really say I was surprised. Oh, no, me neither. Like, looking at some of the drives, like the first drive, it was uh, for like their touchdown with Wisconsin, a 15-play drive, just drove down the field. But then after that, four-place touchdown, three-place touchdown, five-place touchdowns. Utah State had sort of a chance after they recovered a fumble, but they turned the ball over on downs when they couldn't convert on a, a fourth and five. There were a lot of quick strikes for um, for Wisconsin, like a lot of drives, seven or fewer plays that resulted in points. Yeah, and I mean, even beyond that, you know, I had questions about the running game coming into this season as well. And I think that, you know, on the whole, even if you erase the sacks that were you know, accumulated by Wisconsin, your leading runner only had 28 yards. He only had six carries. And, or actually, you know, Lindsey and Hunt combined for 15 carries and like 55 yards, which is just not going to get the job done. And yeah, you're playing against a top 10 team. But, you know, that first drive, you're you're starting, or rather, what am I looking at right now? Well, you should run better when, right when they, here's the thing, they lost their two starting linebackers, they still couldn't move the ball. Well, I mean, and that's, I think that's a credit to Wisconsin, because we know they're a deep team. Like, that's, you know, we know that there's a talent disparity there. But it's just the fact that, you know, the offense, after a couple of really early successful drives just didn't have anything left to offer until late in the game when, you know, they went 71 yards for a drive that ended in interception. Like after that first long drive, which ended in a field goal, they turned a Wisconsin fumble into seven points to get that 10, nothing late. But then beyond that, look at the drive chart, three plays, Three-play. eight yards, mm-hmm. six plays, 15 yards, interception, interception. That is how you kill an upset bid right there. Yeah, it's like I didn't think they could damn step. I figured, okay, ten zero, they're doing something right. They were t- they were they were stopping Wisconsin because look at the first Wisconsin couple of plays, like punt, fumble, punt, punt, and like okay, we're doing all right. But then they just got going. They, they, just what killed them was the touchdown and then the interception late in the half. But not that they're going to score, but still, it's like you get a turnover that stinks. You're st- it's still ten seven, but they turn that into a field goal at the end of the half. Mm-hmm. Had they gone in the half at ten to seven. 
probably wouldn't have made a difference because Wisconsin got the ball. But when they give up an interception, kick a field goal, they get the ball first. They score a touchdown. They turn it over again. That's the point. When it's 24-10, the game's over. When it's 10-10, 17-10, you feel like you're in the game. But when you have so many ter- negative plays in a row, it's just kind of defeat, self-defeating there. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously there's probably not uh, an opponent that's of Wisconsin's caliber left on the schedule. Like, there's a reason Wisconsin came to the t- the season ranked number nine. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to probably run this similar kind of game plan and win a lot of games against everybody. And if you look at the box sheet, you know, you can see that their breakdown of total offense was split pretty much evenly between running and passing. So I'm not sure, like, how much we can learn about the Utah State defense in that regard because, again, Wisconsin is just really good. You know, on the bright side, I really don't see that many teams averaging over 10 yards an attempt like Wisconsin did in this game. No. But, you know, they're going fi- to have to fi- continue finding ways to be opportunistic, kind of like they were early in the game. And if they can do that, you know, even with an offense that scuffles here and there, they should be able to make a lot of games competitive. But, you know, we'll have to see. Well, see, I just, want, I just expected more from, from the running game. But let's get to Saturday's games. All right. Wyoming versus Iowa. Okay. Iowa, Iowa wins 24-3. And my prediction of Wyoming maybe not making the bowl games looking better and better. Not that I want that to happen. But here's the thing. Like, I think people are enamored with Josh Allen. I posed this to a couple people. Nobody really responded. I talked to um, Justin Mello for a minute. I'm want, you know how sometimes people get the same thoughts of saying, oh, this thing is good or this thing's bad? Mm-hmm. Is Josh Allen really good just because one guy said he's good and people agree with him despite not researching enough? Because I don't, I don't know. I don't I mean, necessarily that's a, that's want to subscribe too. to that theory. I'm just wondering because Dr. Saturday over Yahoo put a, a tweet about saying, like, here's his uh, last two Power 5 opponents. It was Nebraska opener last year and this opener versus Iowa. Didn't play well. Had, what, five interceptions? Six turnovers or five picks versus um, Nebraska last year. He had two in this game today, yesterday against Iowa. But then I look further, you go to San Diego State, did it play very well. We both question his passing ability at only what, 55%? And then he goes 23 or 40 and I've always maintained they lose their top three or four pass catchers they lose starting center, lose Brian Hill they couldn't move the ball, they did not try to go downfield and part of it, what Craig Bull said was, they are starting two true freshmen on the offensive line and they didn't trust them to hold back the Iowa defensive front seven to go downfield. The one time they went downfield, C.J. Johnson ball bounced off his chest. That was a clear touchdown. So here's what I think that that point of view overlooks. Because if you look at how Allen did over the course of the game, he was much better in the first half than he was in the second half. You know, and it was a matter, I think, of, of Wyoming just not taking advantage of the opportunities that they had. Because... You know, they pick up an interception on their second drive and they drive to the Wyoming, excuse me, the Iowa 36 yard line and they are forced into a turnover on downs. So that's enough. That's one opportunity gone. Second opportunity, they get a fumble on their fourth drive late in the first quarter. They drive to the Iowa 32. They stall. They get a field goal. They have a lead. But again, you know, getting seven is better than getting three. But I mean, later on, you know, about right before halftime 
they get another fumble. They can't do anything with it. They actually go backwards 20 yards and punt. Yeah. You know, late in the game, they get a fumble. They miss a field goal. You know, they had these opportunities and they just didn't seize them. And I think that that's kind of reflected in how Allen did just by quarters because, you know, in the first quarter, I'm trying to look this up real quick, you know, he was 8 of 10, which is pretty good. In the second quarter, he was, you know, he had a few less opportunities. He was 3 for 4. And it didn't really start coming apart until the fourth quarter, which, by the way, if you remember our discussion of the Nebraska game last year, mm-hmm. yep. four of those interceptions came in the fourth quarter of that game against the Huskers last year. Both and of his interceptions in this game came in the fourth quarter of this game. He was 7 of 15 when the game basically just got away from him at that point. So I feel like the truth about Josh Allen is somewhere between like kind of the two extremes of like, you know, he's a future first round talent with this amazing arm strength, but we know he has some stuff to work on and he's totally overrated and maybe we should tap the brakes a lot. You know, because I think on the whole, he had opportunities. He did make some plays. And like you said, his receivers kind of let him down at certain points. Well, but also the offense let him down. Not just, I mean, the play calling. Like Johnson, it was a ball that had it been thrown. I'm not putting any blame on Allen, but because what happened, happened to just hit Johnson right at the chest. He didn't catch it. It popped out, but he caught it immediately, but it's so far in the back of the end zone. Had he been... A foot, a foot shorter, a foot closer, like the play was a foot closer to the other end of the field. Touchdown could have made a difference. They missed a field goal. That could have been a difference as well, going back 20 yards. But Craig Bull said because he's starting two freshmen, he wanted to go horizontal, not vertical. And, yeah, they don't have Tanner Gentry, but look at the throws he threw downfield last year. I can remember throwing the Mountain West title game, going down to find C.J. Johnson throwing across the field, like 30 yards, like not just a strike down the field, but going to – like going from the left side to the right side across the field to Johnson for a TD. Like he can make those throws and he had good throws, but the offense didn't allow him to do anything down the field at all. And then also the running game was garbage as well. I'm sorry. You ran for 59 yards and your longest yard was by Josh Allen, which was 11 long, but when you include sacks, he was minus 10 on the day. Milo Hall, Kevin Overstreet didn't do anything special. They did, they were terrible. Nico Evans had three carries for five yards. It's also the running game that doesn't help you because maybe that's part of it too. When you can't run the ball, Wisconsin, not Wisconsin, Iowa can decide. They can dictate what they want to do. All right, you can't. You can, we can stop the run with four guys. That's it. We'll drop seven guys. We'll rush only three guys and still stop your running play. We, and if you're going to pass, that's fine. We have eight deep. Drop back six, seven, eight deep. Maybe they. That was a plan as well. I'm just trying to figure out like how good Allen is because. Completion percentage is a big deal, and also think about it. I know we're getting way ahead because the drafts so far are down the road, but and we're talking game specific here. But really quick, like let me ask you this: When's the last time a qu- when you're drafted as a quarterback and you go high, you're never on a bad team. If you're an offensive lineman or wide receiver or a defensive player, your team can go two and ten, and you can still be a number one overall pick, or you mm-hmm. can be on a bad team. When's the last time a quarterback who's been on a not a good team been taken in the top ten? Or even a first-rounder. Patrick Mahomes. Texas Tech didn't make a bowl game last year? Weren't they in that range? Or did they not? They were 5-7 and seven okay, last year I'm, because their defense was garbage. Okay, I'm just I'm trying to think about it. I just wasn't sure. It's Usually, but it's, you, that's more the anomaly, right? 
It is pretty rare. I mean, without having yeah. those kinds of numbers in front of me, yeah. That's why I'm glad you brought up Mahomes because I knew Texas Tech wasn't great, but they're at least a bowl team. Like, if Wyoming goes five and seven, is Josh Allen still going to be number three overall pick or something? Probably not. I think if I think if Wyoming goes five and seven, he's probably going to come back for his senior year. We'll see. Uh, but for this next, what do you want to see from the going forward? Because I want to see a running game be better. And it let let Josh Allen throw the ball at least twelve yards down the field. Okay, so I think there's a couple of answers to that question from where I'm standing. One thing I want to see, and I saw this on on Twitter earlier. Um, one of the writers over at Pro Football Focus, Steve Palazzolo, had you know a very brief clip from the Iowa game. He basically mentioned that Allen had two interceptions yesterday, and from his charting from the video that he saw. He could have had four interceptions. I agree with that. So there were a couple if, that if were nothing bad. else. Yeah, so I think if nothing else, Allen, yes, is going to have to figure out a way to play better. And like you said, they are going to have to kind of rediscover that downfield game. And and yes, as you said, the running game is also going to have to be better because averaging under three and a half yards per carry from your top two guys is just not going to get it done. But on the flip side, I mean, let's not ignore the fact that Iowa State, or rather, Iowa's linebackers are really good. And, you know, one of their their guy in the middle, Josie Jewell, had 14 tackles, two and a half sacks, or rather, tackles for loss, two sacks. And if I'm not mistaken, was the Walter Camp Defensive Player of the Week. And it's very rare, I think, that they're going to play that kind of defender who can have that kind of an impact on a game. So, should Wyoming fans be disappointed? Yes. Like, do they have things that they're going to have to work on in the weeks to come? Yes. But I don't think the season's a lost cause. It's one game. It shouldn't be. But there is concern after one game. Well, like you said, Josh Allen's going to have to play better. The running game's going to have to be a little bit better. But, you know, I think once they, you know, find, once they start playing some more flexible defenses that are willing to bend a little more. I think then we'll know a little more about Wyoming as a team. Exactly. All right, let's move on to a quick recap. Air Force 62, VMI, key debts, zero. My biggest takeaway, why did Air Force have the need to pass for 190 yards? Well, let's not forget they only threw it 12 times. 14 times. Or 14 times, right? Nate Rome. I was thinking of, yeah. yeah. Arian Worthman had 8 of 12, 172 yards. And I think... You know, you're trying to, I think, show the rest of the conference and future opponents, look, yes, we run the ball very well. You know, they averaged almost seven yards a carry and rolled up 457 yards on the ground. But we could still throw the ball, too. And, you know, they got a guy in Gerard Sanders outside who could be that, you know, answer for who's going to replace Jalen Robinette because both of the catches he had were for touchdowns. Yeah, a 57-yarder and a 5-yarder. Yeah. And my, what also take away, I'm trying to look at count how many Air Force players rushed the ball. I cannot fit it onto my screen. A, the uh, the overlapping top covers it. There were seventeen, I think, seventeen players who rushed the ball once, including including two carries that are simply marked as team. I'm assuming is that maybe a fumble recovery or something? Maybe. Yeah. Offensive maybe lineman like picked that. it up and somebody went 21 yards, but. I'm wondering who's going to be the main fullback or running back because it's Worthman and McVay, but who's next? Like Parker Wilson was thought to be, uh, which he did well, like to be that next fullback or running back. Um, 
out there after uh, McVeigh. You have like Nolan Erickson. So we'll see who's going to run the ball. But it's just hard to tell. They they did their thing, but defensively, like we mentioned at the beginning, or you did, they lost so many starters, and to shut out any team is really good. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a step in the right direction. VMI, of course, is not going to blow the doors off of anybody on offense this year. But anytime you can hold anybody under 100 yards of total offense, I think that that's worth hanging your hat on to. All right, let's move on to a game that was almost an upset until the second half came around. Northwestern beats Nevada 31-20. to And to somewhat of a surprise, I I didn't call this, but I mentioned this earlier in the year, I guess in the, during camp. Back when fall camp started, Norvell mentioned, Jay Norvell mentioned David Cornwell's our starter. And I'll, I kept pointing out to people, like, he kept saying, for now. Like, I had people from, like, Ralph Russo to AP and other people saying, look, no, it's Cornwell. I'm like, you'd read the quote, he says, for now. And, like, well, whatever. He announced he's a starter. I'm like, okay. But it's coach speaking, whatever. And it happened to be Saturday morning, Ty Gange, is starting quarterback. I'm like, okay. And Gange looked reasonably good for a while. Like, he scrambled a bit. They made some good throws. They were going downfield a bit. But the second half, they just couldn't get it going because they're up 17-7. to seven. Probably, should, probably should have been more than that at the half, but they he didn't throw well enough. He was about, what, 50% just under, 16 of 37. He was under. He was 16 of 37. Yeah. That's that's pretty – Yeah, 40 – That's not Not great. good. But but we know what the offense is because they were, they were taking shots downfield. Like, they had a 41-yard pass. They had a 24-yard pass, 19-yard pass. They were going downfield. It's just that in the second half, they just everything kind of just stopped for them, and Northwestern kind of figured it out a little bit. I mean, I think on offense, what you can be encouraged by if you're a Wolfpack fan is the fact that you know maybe the running game is going to be in pretty good hands after all because Jackson Kincaid only had 15 carries, but he had 92, but he had 86 yards, which is pretty good all things considered. And I've always thought that you know Ganji would. Um, you know, provide a little more of a, a, a multi-dimensional offense with his legs than Cornwall would, mm-hmm. and so I mean he only ran for 16 yards in this game, but I think that that's definitely something to watch going forward because we know he's a mobile kind of guy. So I mean I think that I would be encouraged by that, and I'd also be encouraged by the fact that we know there's more than Wyatt Demps now because we know Caleb Fossum caught four catches for 36 yards. That's a positive, I think. And they had a guy in McLean Mannix who caught his first collegiate touchdown. It was a 41-yard toss. And, you know, if you have that big strike capability, there are secondaries in this conference that are ripe for being picked on. So, yeah, Ganji wasn't as efficient as he probably could be. But I think there are some encouraging signs there. There were. In this game, it was 17-7. to late in the game, like there's a chance for Nevada to get a victory because they picked off, they had an interception, uh, 17 to 17. And then they settled. They only moved one yard and, but they got the field goal to go up 20 to 17. I'm like, okay. And we got one yard, but you still got points out of it. Yes. They gave up a touchdown on the next possession at 20. So it's 24, 20 in the fourth quarter. It was a kind of a longer drive, but here's where it just kind of ended for Nevada. They have four, four down territory. They go for it at midfield. They don't get the one yard and Northwestern scores to make an 11-point game. So there's chances. Like, this was late in the game. Nevada was still in this, despite Ganji throwing under 50%. Running game, it's getting there, but not quite there. But they were in this game. Yeah, it's an 11-point victory, but it was much closer than what it was. These two touchdowns came late in the game to get the victory. And one thing I was surprised with and pleasantly surprised, 
we all thought the defense would still be terrible. It wasn't that terrible. It was actually, for, especially the running game where we joked, oh, it's going to be awful. They only gave up three yards of carry. I mean, I think it kind of depends on your perspective. Cause Positive. They still Positive. did give up. <laughs> because they did give up over 500 yards of total offense, yeah. which isn't great. And most of that was through the air. So, yeah, while I think it's a win to say that they only gave up, you know, a shade over three yards per carry on the ground, you know, they're definitely going to need to improve upon giving up, you know, over nine yards an attempt. And I think with the talent that they have coming back in that secondary, you know, I kind of expect a little better from them. Yeah, secondary is interesting, uh, but I did like, because part of the defense, they had eight TFLs, and then you look at what Austin Palouis did, 15 tackles, three and a half TFLs, a pass breakup, half a sack. Maybe I was just watching, noticing those big defensive plays because they were getting back there and slowing them down. But you think with like Damian Baber back there, Malik Reed, their secondary shouldn't have allowed that many uh, passing yards and a percentage, even though they had a couple of pass breakups, like three P- PBUs. But what's 20, 20 to 30? What's that, 60% or so? Uh, I believe so, yeah. So it's a, I wasn't expecting the victory, but wasn't it's like a 25-point spread. I always thought that was way too much. But we'll see. And then at postgame, we had one of our um, writers there covering uh, Peter Elliott for this matchup, asked a question about who's going to start next week. And Norville basically said it's going to be Ganji. Like he said, it should be. So look for Ganji to be the starter next week. But I thought I thought Corner would have played, but with it being so close, it's Ganji. So we'll see. And if he, I think what you mentioned before, if he can get stuff going on the ground, that's going to help them out a lot for Ganji's sake. Yeah. All right, did you? How much of this Boise State Troy game did you watch? Zero. <laughs> did you see what happened? Essentially, I saw people freaking out about Britt Rippin on Twitter. I'm going to agree and say rightfully so. For a couple reasons. Well, let's get to the game here. Twenty four thirteen, Boise won. So um, most people thought this game would have been like forty to forty. Essentially, let's start here. Boise's defense is legit. Because Troy's offense should be pretty good, but like they held Brandon Silvers to only 139 yards, they held the running game to like two and a half yards of carry. But we kind of knew a little bit that the yeah, Montel Cores at play a little bit. I don't think people expected him to play as much as he did. He was six of nine, had the only touchdown pass in the game for Boise, and had another 36 yards on the ground. So tell me a little bit more about why Cozart found his way into the game. Because, I, I mean, I see him in the box score, but I didn't actually get to watch the game, so I'm just curious as to how that turned it just, out. He, it was just a, it was going to happen. For the first, like, it wasn't anything like Rippin didn't get hurt, didn't throw an interception, wasn't ineffective. I guess maybe we didn't research well enough beforehand because I never assumed, like, when you have possibly the best quarterback in the conference, why are you going to put him on the sideline ever? What's the point of that? He His first couple of times he came in were, like, the Wildcat, or the he's going to be quarterback under center and just kind of run the ball. Like his first play came on the second drive where he ran for two ball, ran for two yards, left the game. Okay. Like, here's the drive chart right there. Like, Rippin came in and passed to Ryan Wolpin 17 yards. Here comes Cozart, runs for two yards. Rippin comes in for the rest of the drive. So I'm thinking, okay, it's just a one-play thing here or there just to mix it up. But then where things get interesting is where he comes in later on Let's see, is like the fourth, the touchdown drive here, I believe it was. 
I'm correct. Let me see. Yeah, Kozart comes in for that long drive. That was a six-play 77-yarder. He didn't do anything particularly special. He ran for five yards, had a 17-yard pass to a Cedric Wilson, and then he had that Alexander Madison 49-yard touchdown run. But the offense was stop and go, and it didn't really matter what quarterback was in there. It looked to run a little bit smoother with Kozart, but the offense would be, oh, penalty, uh, negative play, two yards, false start play. And so... It was, an, but the thing is, Cozart played two straight possessions, and there was no reason during the game for an explanation because it was hot. It was like about ninety-five degrees, I believe. So it wasn't like he was cramping or injured. But he played two complete drives, and both led to, um, excuse me, one was a touchdown, and the one was a um, what happened here? Hold on. They went for it on fourth and five and didn't get. I sorry, I was looking for something else, but he led two drives, mm-hmm. consecutive drives, and then. What's really what I think where people really started freaking out. Here comes in Brett Rippin. Okay, they force Troy to punt. Rippin throws the interception on his second pass. So, okay, here's my question. Oh, sorry. So let me rephrase that. Pick I'm, six. Not just interception. Pick six. Okay, so here's my question. Because I feel like we talked about this in the preview podcast. Are we sure that everybody wasn't just underrating how good Troy's defense was? Because we knew going into this game that they were bringing a very experienced defense as well as a very experienced offense with them to the blue turf. And, you know, last year they were a top 25 defense by yards per play. Last year they led the Sun Belt in total takeaways. And so, you know, if they are making plays against what we consider to be a pretty good offense in Boise State... That doesn't necessarily surprise me that much that Rippon would struggle a little bit against a really good defense. I think it's to Boise's credit that they were able to answer that with as much as they were able to accomplish on defense their own. You know, they held Silvers to 50% passing, which is a huge win. They held Troy's top two runners to like 80 yards on the ground. That's a huge win. And they had four sacks, which is really significant. And even on offense, even despite Ripper's struggles, they were 9 of 19 on third downs. Those are all pretty good results. It just, I think part of it was when you watch the game, it just looked like there's always a, maybe we did undervalue Troy's defense. That's probably for sure. But I think when you have the combination of you're switching quarterbacks and Kozart's playing more than people thought, the offense looked better or more smooth when he was in the game running the ball. There wasn't a false start. There wasn't a big play, a two-yard handoff or one-yard loss or something. It just seemed when Kozart was playing, the offense had a better groove to it. And, he, again, he had the only touchdown pass in the game. And, it brought, again, here's my, I'll go back to this. If Brett Rippin's supposed to be the number one quarterback of the conference, why is he on the sideline for 15 plays? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm just saying that, you know, all things considered, I think the story of this game is kind of similar to what we were just talking about with Colorado State. And, you know, in some respects, also to Utah State, where early in the game, they had golden opportunities that they just didn't take full advantage of. You know, second drive was the turnover on downs. Third drive was a fumble. Both of those were on Troy's side of the field. And they ended up having, what, three four, five drives throughout the game that stalled on Troy's side of the field. So if you figure they turn one or two of those into you know extended drives, turn those even into field goals or most optimistically into touchdowns, 
then you're talking about a very different narrative. So if I'm a Boise State fan, I'm trying not to freak out too much about this because Troy is going to be a really good team in the Sun Belt this year. They're, and they're going to give a lot of teams fits. And if you can shut them down on offense the way that you guys did, to me, I think that that's kind of the biggest takeaway that you can take with you into future weeks. But here's one play as well I want to mention. Before, well, actually, there's one more thing I want to mention. If he's your guy, like, he, Brett Rip was on the sideline for, like, basically the entire fourth quarter. The game when he drive to put it away was not led by him. It was led by Cozart. And so that you got, I take all those into consideration where why is he on the sideline when he's your best option? You would think he'd be your best option. It's just confusing to me that they're going to do that late in the game. Where it's like, all right, because here's what happened before. One play we're not mentioning that was crazy. Boise State nearly had a pick six. Um, Silvers threw the ball about deep blues or red zone area. Almost a pick six. The ball got tipped up in the air off the receiver or the cornerback because he's probably staring in the end zone. The Troy player caught the ball. But then another Boise State player came over when he tried to overstretch in the end zone. The ball goes through the end zone for a touchback. So that could have been a big swing as well because at that point it was, I want to say 17 to 13 would have been a touchdown. If I'm, I'm trying to look at the right spot here. But, yeah, there's a, a huge swing where then Boise goes down and scores. So that was a play that, like, changed the entire outcome of the game. But, again, my thing, if Cozart, yeah, it's 20, sorry, 24-13. And then, Boy- and then Boise just kind of ran the game out. So it could have made a difference late in the game where it goes out of the end zone. But, again, I go back to you don't have Rippon in the fourth quarter as your quarterback. Why not? I mean, I would try not to overreact. I think if there's any disappointment, it's the fact that they weren't always able to take advantage of ideal field position. Because I think it's worth noting, too, that on average, they started at their own 41-yard line, which is huge. And, you know, even though Troy was starting at their own 33 on average, you know, if you have those kinds of opportunities, I think in the future you have to be able to take greater advantage of them. So I would try not to overreact to Brett Rippon. I would try to place what the defense was able to do in its proper perspective, and I would just move on with that. We'll see. Hopefully it's just a game. Sorry, my my point was there's 17 to 10. That fumble, Boise ended up punting, Mm -hmm. and then uh, Troy came back for a field goal. But that could have been... Think of it, 17-17, late in the game. And then also, we haven't even mentioned special teams. Like you mentioned uh, field position last year, weren't they? Like, were, I think you brought it up a bunch. Weren't they basically the worst field starting field position in the country or right around like 120 or something? Yeah, that was one of those things that came up, I believe, in our team preview of Boise State. But then you had, just real quick, we, don't mention, we didn't mention a forearm shiver by Avery Williams who had that punt return for a touchdown. He averaged like... Which was beautiful, by it the was. way. Like I made a joke, and people are like, "What is this joke on Twitter?" I'm like, "Did they like Rashard Penny's going to come out and start returning kicks now after seeing what Avery Williams did?" And people are like, "How does this? How does this have to compare to San Diego State?" I guess people didn't get it. I thought it was kind of clever, but overall, special teams: Cedric Wilson and Avery Williams had 100 yards on kick returns, 124 Williams on punt returns. That's going to be a threat to do it if their offense does struggle at all. Because again, running game didn't do every, anything spectacular either, which give credit to Troy. But Alexander Madison takeaway is 49-yard run. Or actually, including that, they only averaged three yards per carry, 3.3. He has one big play of 49 yards for a touchdown. After that, they were basically stopped this whole game. Whole game. So that's something I want to see improve. And maybe it is. Maybe you're right. Maybe it's just the we undervalued Detroit's defense. But I'd also say Boise's defense 
played extremely well, much better than I thought. See it for what it is, which is a hard-fought win. That's all I got to say about that. Excellent. This win could get Boise State ranked, possibly, on when the poll comes out, Tuesday or Monday, Labor Day. I don't know. I believe so, So yes. Later in the week, we got the holiday. All right, let's move on. We're, we got to move along here. We're already sitting at 48 minutes. Actually, let's take a quick breather. I need to take a time out here. So we will come back and talk about the next game. All right, folks. San Jose State, Cal Poly. San Jose State's 1-1. One one. They win 34-13. Not too much to say in this game, except they did stop the uh, triple option offense. Only three yards of carry allowed, 3.2, which is a big improvement for what we've seen on the Spartans' defense the past, what, three years, four years? Here's a question for you, though. Do we have a do we have a quarterback controversy in San Jose now? Well, they did start Josh Love. I would say so with Montel Aaron actually putting up points on the board. I mean, because this is kind of the second straight week where you know, yes, last week against South Florida they did jump out to a lead, but they weren't necessarily moving the ball as much as you might like, and so you know. When you're down early against Cal Poly, 6 nothing, I believe it was, before they were able to answer with Aaron under center, if Love's not getting it done, I think with the performance that Aaron had, where he was 11 of 17, 183 yards, three touchdowns, you know, Cal Poly's not a bad FCS team. And while, yes, there is a, a jump in difficulty in going from Cal Poly to facing Texas... Is there? You know, well, let's let's not get too much into Texas. We'll start trashing him in our preview next week. Um, you know, this is the second straight week where he's shown a little something, uh, shown a little bit of an ability to make plays. And not only that, you know, what I talked about in the preview about the running game really making more of a statement. You know, Blake Robinson had 43 yards, which is, you know, fine. But Zamor Ziegler, I think, kind of broke out and became the guy at least for a week with 121 yards on 12 carries and a touchdown i think if you can get one of those two guys into the mix you know texas might be more beatable than we thought i mean we'll talk about that more extensively in our preview in a few days but you know i think there's a lot of promise going forward coming out of this game it's good i want you want to see them get things right like the running game which wasn't right last year or last week really stopping the Cal Poly triple option. I don't care what level you're playing. Triple option's hard to stop, and Spartans' uh, rushing defense has been pretty bad. But we'll see when the press conference will have uh, Ana there. I think it's, it is going to be Monday still. See if they're going to announce if it's Montel Aaron or anybody else. But they're playing Texas, which, whatever, like I said, we'll get to it. Didn't Aaron also score the only touchdown last week for the passing game for Spartans as well, I believe? Uh, no, Love had one in the first quarter. It was a short touchdown to Bailey Gaither, I believe. Okay. Well, he did have one as well. So he has four touchdowns to one, I believe. So he's getting he's getting yeah. in the end zone. So that's one thing we did. That's that's what, that's what the game, name of the game, score points. And Aaron scored more points. And efficiency-wise, they're about the same, 4 of 9, 11 to 17. Obviously, Aaron goes downfield a lot more. But it's hard to tell when he played Cal Poly. But they're both going to play anyway, so it shouldn't be a shock. But I'm guessing Aaron started playing better and said, let's just keep him in and ride him. Write him, and so if I'm going to place a wager now, Aaron's going to get the start versus Texas next week in Austin. Yeah, and I mean, and they were much better at moving the chains 
against Cal Poly than they were against South Florida. You know, eight of seventeen on third downs, and you know they continued you know forcing turnovers. Like they ended up forcing four fumbles and recovering three of them, I believe. So, you know, those are the kinds of things where when we talked about it with South Florida, we'll probably talk about it more with Texas. You know, if you can create turnovers, that I think is always a key formula for any kind of upset bit on the road. So we'll see what happens. We'll see. All right, next game. Let's move on here because we get some more FCS games. We get to throw bows in action. Are you? Ex- is that official now since they beat Abilene Christian in the, through the air? We're making it official. They won 38-14. to 14. It was close for a while, only 14-7. to 7. Jordan, 11-17, to 17, 213, and a touchdown. That's what I want to see. About – he probably won't throw that many times every week, but if he's 10-14, 8-12, did pretty good. Running the ball, they did They did their thing six and a half yards per carry. Richard McCorley kind of surprised me with only 10-22, of 22, but overall, they got a victory and their defense didn't give up 20 points, except they did allow a lot in the air. I mean, I think it wasn't as close as you're suggesting because if you look at the drive chart, you know, they well, their first drive, they get to the Abilene Christian one-yard line and the Wildcats are able to stop them on fourth and goal. And then they march down for 99 yards and a touchdown. And, you know, I'm sure if you're a Lobos fan, you might be thinking, oh, my God, here we go again with this. But beyond that, you know, they they locked down, you know, and they forced a missed field goal on their second drive. And then through basically the end of the game, they didn't allow Abilene Christian past midfield till late in the fourth quarter. So I think that, yeah, they did give up a lot through the air. But again, Abilene Christian threw the ball, I believe, 45 times or 53, yeah, 53 times. Excuse me. Yeah. So they had, you know, the. They had 240 yards from the starting quarterback, but they threw it 53 times and they forced two interceptions. So that's pretty good. Yeah, they did good. I just meant and on offense, wise, you know, it was close. Yeah, and so you know, on offense, of course, they did what they were usually able to do on the ground: six and a half yards per carry, which is kind of what you would expect to see week in and week out from this team. But yeah, I mean, if the, if the throwing, if the aerial attack is real. Like, if, if Chris Davis and Delane Hart Johnson can be guys who can haul in one or two 20 or 30 yard catches per or week, 40. you know, the, the defense is likely to see some stiffer challenges throughout the year, but that's going to make that offense just that much more dangerous. It would be because you see what Air Force does, and I could argue who would you say is a better running attack? Is it New Mexico or Air Force? I mean, I think until further notice, I mean, it kind of depends on what you value in a running game because we know Air Force is generally more efficient, but New Mexico has shown itself to be more explosive, which you kind of saw again in this game where, you know, Daryl Chestnut ran for 64 yards. His longest carry was 54 yards. And, you know, Romel Jordan, who, by the way, was coming back and playing in his first game since tearing his ACL, he ran for 65 yards to lead the team. His longest carry was 44 yards. So... Yeah, I feel like it's kind of unfair to answer that question. I'm just going to say yes. They're both very good. Okay, I just think I said before, if this passing game can get going, they're going to be tough to watch because, like you said, they have the deep passing play to go along with it, and it's also Abilene Christian. Don't need to go overboard, but it's good to see because they didn't have to throw the ball to win this game. But seeing they threw it 18 times with a uh, uh, Tavaka Chuyoti, I believe, getting at least one throw in there, 
it's it's what I wanted to see. I wanted to see if they could throw it, and we'll see when they start playing. They got New Mexico State next week, and they play um, some better competition down the road in conference play. Tulsa, Boise State, all those teams coming up. So you ready to move on to the um, really quick UC Davis San Diego State Facebook live game? That one was a little hard to watch. Yeah, it looked like a Vaseline on the screen. And I'm not saying that. I'm not saying. I'm not saying that as a slight to the Aztec. I mean, like it was really hard to watch on Facebook because the feed was so choppy. It got better. I tuned in in the second half. Cause I'm like, I can't do this. I'm. It's no point in watching. It got good in the fourth quarter, and there's still the same amount of people watching. About two to three thousand throughout the game when I was kind of poking in because it kind of gives you those numbers. It got better in the second half, but. Like you said on our Twitter feed, Richard Penny's very good at football, still very good. And yeah, they ran the ball very well. You had Jawan Washington and Richard Penny do their thing. Passing game. Christian Chapman, 16 to 21. He tried to warn you. Hey, I've always said, show me and I'll believe you. I'll believe when I see it because the past three years, the passing game has not need needed to be there. Not that it did it for this game, but 16 to 21. Two touchdowns. They had what seven guys, eight guys catch a ball. You had a they had the two redshirt freshmen get to start in this game. You had Kelly Warren with five uh, receptions for seventy four yards. Similar to New Mexico, I said if Aztecs have a good passing game, they're going to be extremely difficult to stop. I'd prefer them not to give up seventeen points to UC Davis, but it's UC Davis week one, and they got the victory by twenty uh 19, or yeah twenty one points. Well, and it wasn't only the the new guys on offense that made a huge impact. Let's not forget about the new guy we mentioned in our preview on defense, Tariq Thompson, true freshman, who had an inter- had an interception, forced a fumble. True freshman, I believe. Uh, I believe it was the student information director for SDSU who said he was the first true freshman to start for the Aztecs since Leon McFadden in two thousand and nine. That's pretty good company. Yeah, and for this defense, that's always top-notch, top-20 defense, top-15 defense. Yeah, so while, you know, the difficulty level obviously goes up from UC Davis to Arizona State next sort week, of. There's, a lot, there's a lot for Aztec fans to feel good about in this game. The young guys came through, and I think if there was a question about that, a lot of those questions were answered in game one. And 14 of those points came in the fourth quarter with backups in there, so it was closer than what it was. But it was 38-3 for the most part. In the fourth quarter, the Aztecs just kind of cruised long to get to victory. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the next game. Oh, boy. Are we ready for this one? Are we ready for it? I think we are. Howard, 43. UNLV, 40. Oh, no. I wasn't ready for uh, it. This was apparently the <laughs> largest. This surpassed Stanford USC as the biggest point spread upset. It was 45 points. Somehow you, you somehow UNLV was favored by anybody. I didn't even know they put lines on half these FCS games. 45 points favored by Howard. Or, excuse me, favored over Howard. They lose 43-30, and they they start kicking field goals at the start of the game. I'm like, okay. I'm like, eventually they'll break, break through because they started off, what, three straight field goals to, to begin the game? Something like that. It was touchdown, field goal. Yeah, missed field goal. Sorry, field goal. I don't know what the deal is because they went, yeah, field goal, field goal, missed field goal, field goal. So it was 14 to 9, but three field goals and a missed field goal. And then, and then, this and hold on, wait, wait, there's the more. Weekend. Then a fumble touchdown given up. First quarter was as bad as it could be 21 to 9. <laughs> I mean, 
it's kind of the story of the weekend, isn't it? Just not taking advantage of the opportunities that are given to you. Because in that first half, yeah, those field goals, those drives started the stalled rather at the 27, the 11, the 25 was a missed field goal in the nine yard line. If any one of those drives goes differently, if they're able to convert another third down or a fourth down, that you know, all of a sudden the narrative is totally different. But like, you know, UNLV was only four of eleven on third downs in this game, and you have to just kind of start there and ask yourself, how does that happen? Especially when you consider that as an offense, how many yards of total offense did they put up? They put up five hundred and sixty-four yards of total offense. So they were showing an ability to move the chains. It's just that Howard was coming up with stops, especially early in that game, when they needed them the most. Yeah, three of the four field goals in the first half were within the red zone. Yeah, and then the two and then the two missed field goals later on. One was just outside the red zone, and then one was from the thirty-one. So a little more difficult attempt for Pantles. Demand, you know. That's just kind of, I think, the way to look at this game is like, yes, Armani Rogers had a very good debut, eleven to nineteen, two hundred twenty yards and a score, no turnovers or anything like that. And then, of course, Devontae Boyd was back, Mm -hmm. four catches, one hundred and five yards. They ran the ball extremely well, three hundred fifty-five yards as a team, seven and a half yards per carry. But that defense, man, told you, right. Well, I mean, we both talked about it in the team preview leading up to the season was we knew UNLV was going to score a lot of points. It was just a matter of how well that defense was going to come together. And at least in this game, they basically got torched on the ground by the real Newton family member. Kayla Newton. (laughs) He's the guy who actually looks like Cam Newton on the field. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. I... There's no excuse to lose this game because I knew the UNL, UNLV defense would be terrible, not good. But you're playing Howard, who again, not a good FBC like their FCS team, F, HBCU usually not as good on some por- portions at the FCS level. But this is a bad Howard team, and they Newton did what he wanted to do against them. He averaged nine yards every time he ran the ball, threw, was efficient in the air, but. They were given UNLV was like a one point eight percent chance to uh, lose this game, and mm-hmm. I, I don't know. There's no there's no words to describe how terrible this loss is. Even the offense who put up all those yards those, left at least twenty one points. Like three of those field those field goals were like at the ten yard line or closer. You score two touchdowns, you have eight more points. The game's a completely different game. Well, I mean, I think. You know, on one hand, the defense did give up a lot of yards, but they also had like nine tackles for loss as a team. You know, I think that you could be encouraged by some of the individual performances. You know, Jericho Flowers was a wide receiver last year, if I'm not mistaken. He had two tackles for loss. You know, Nick Dadashian had a tackle and a half for loss. Um, Gabe McCoy stepping in at linebacker had an interception. But they were just giving up too many plays. They were letting Howard extend too many drives. And this, in the same vein that I was just talking about UNLV being relatively unsuccessful on third downs, Howard was 10 of 20 on third downs, and they were 2 of 4 on fourth downs. So they were just getting, they were making plays 
in clutch situations where the Rebels just weren't. So here, well, you know, there's ah, sorry, there's a million things running through my head. You want to know what the biggest shock in this game was? What's that? So after the game or near the end of the game, one of the, whoever was doing the play by play or whatever said, "UNLV could still make a bowl game. That's not out of the question." Okay, so I mean, can we talk about that for a minute? Yeah. Because I, I don't want to say that that's impossible. It's not impossible, but come we, on. But it just got a lot harder. They're over under you know, was five and a half wins, and they lost the one gimme. Yeah, and I mean, we knew kind of coming into the season what this team was going to be, and you know we figured that kind of team was going to be good enough to beat a team like Howard. So, yeah, they scored 40 points, which is really good. But if you're going to give up 43 points to Howard, I don't really know how that's going to shake out when you start facing... Ohio State. They're going to give up 100 points to Ohio State? Is Urban Meyer going to win 100 to 3? I mean, I don't want to get Well, there's a game. No, there's a game this weekend. I forget who. I think it was D3 game, 98 to 0. Well, that's D3, though. Let's not get carried away now. I'm just saying, man. I'm just saying. I mean, you have to get better on defense. Like, we knew that coming into the game. But, like, really now, you have to get better on defense. But then, at the same time, they didn't really help themselves by turning the ball over two times. When you kind of look at the drive chart, you know, they had, you know, two drives that ended on fumbles that were really killer, including one that was the next-to-last play of the game, where if, I believe it was Lexington Thomas who, yeah, had a really good game, but he kind of let them down at the end by turning. No, it over. it's right here. It was a, um, as a pass. To, or was it the it other was guy? It Drew Tetchman, who fumbled the ball after it. Or Tetchman, thirty-three yeah. yard pass from Armani Rogers, moving into the territory of uh, Howard, getting close to there, and then they they're down mm-hmm. three. They lose the ball. Hey, let's give them credit. At least their last play of the game was better than uh, UMass's attempt at a hail mary. They actually moved the ball about 30 yards or so before getting taken down. But, I mean, they had chances even after all of this to win the game, and they just kind of shot themselves in the foot. And, yeah, well, there's going to be a learning curve. There's going to be some growing pains when there's this kind of disparity and how good you can be on offense and how bad you might be on defense. Yeah, I don't know beyond that. Who was it? There's one of our writers who said Tony Sanchez could get fired this year. <laughs> Losing to Howard's a fireable offense. We're going to have to go back and look at our bold I'll predictions. I'll have to see, but that's bold. So. somebody did say I want to say it was – I don't want to say who just got overclawed. I don't want to throw a name out there, but somebody mentioned that. All right, let's get to your game. You were at Fresno State 66-0 versus Incarnate Word. You were, were you um, relieved from the 109-degree temperatures for this game inside the press box? It was suffocating just walking up the hill to the press box, man. But you made it, so that's always good to hear. I did make it. I made it alive to write the recap and everything. So I'll just let you go for the game because this game was not on TV at all. I did not see any of it. I just saw some highlights that the Twitter account put out there from Fresno. They seem this – this is what UNLV should have done. Beat a team this bad, maybe not this bad, but just crush them. So let me ask you this, the new offense with Jeff Tedford, what they want to do throwing the ball. What was your impressions of seeing what Chase and Virgil and even Marcus McMarion, who got in for a significant time? 
I mean, on the whole, the the easy answer is that they looked like a much different team than they did last year. You know, because in the opener last year against Nebraska, there were some fits and starts, but it basically got away from them after halftime. And then they came home and they played a really lousy Sacramento State team, and it took them three quarters to basically put the game away. So, and you know, right from the get-go in this in this particular game against the Cardinals, you could tell that it was different because they had a couple of big plays on their first drive, and then basically had seven straight three and outs after that, basically going into the second half. So. You know, to their that's to the defense's credit. Like the defense looked revitalized, and they forced turnovers, and they had they could have had more than the two turnovers they had. Johnny Johnson had an interception that he dropped at one point, and there was a couple of other pretty close plays later in the second half as well, where they're the 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 the, the UIW quarterback um, Taylor Laird was basically running for his life in the second half. On offense, it wasn't perfect. You know, Chase and Virgil had a had an okay game. He was 16 of 29, 246 yards. But he left several throws on the field. And you can read my recap for a more extensive list of how he was a little bit of a disappointment. But you know, there was one throw into the end zone where Darian Grimm didn't have a didn't have a defender around him in the end zone. Like he was that far open. And Virgil basically threw the pass at his feet and he couldn't haul it in. You know, he had another throw to Ronnie Rivers that was in, marked as an incompletion, but if he had led Rivers properly, would have, he would have walked into the end zone. He had beaten the defender by like three yards. You know, Jameer Jordan's longest play of the game, I believe, was uh, it was a thirty, it was a forty-yard catch that he made. That should have been a touchdown too, except Virgil just basically underthrew him. And, and Jordan had to, like, turn around and, like, dive for it to be able to haul it in. And so while they eventually, you know, punched in, they, they, they took advantage of all of their opportunities. But they left some points on the board, as amazing as that sounds. And then it, it, it took them a little while to get going. Um, they started with Ronnie Rivers, the true freshman that they brought in this year. And, you know, at a certain point, they basically kind of wore the Cardinals' defense down. Like, they did end up running for about five yards to carry, which is significant improvement on what they were doing week in and week out last year. But it took them a little while to get going. There were some fits and starts in the first half. But, you know, you could see why Tedford likes this guy, because in his lone touchdown run that he had, he basically made one cut and was off to the races for 30 yards out. You know, and Jordan Mims came in later in the in the in the second half and had a similar kind of run where, you know, basically ran untouched into the end zone. So you could see where they like these guys. You know, Hokit, Josh Hokit was able to punch in two one yard scores. So I would kind of expect him to be a short yardage back going forward. And he even had a halfback pass for sixty five yards down the field. I it saw was that. A, it was a double pass. Very impressive. It was more impressive in person than it looked in the video. So they've got a lot going for them, but it's going to be really interesting to see how the quarterback situation shakes down when they travel to Alabama next week because Virgil was okay. He did actually he did make a couple of you know difficult throws down the field later in his stint. But when Marcus McMarion came in in the second half, 
He looked pretty good, all things considered. Like, he was 6 of 7 for 103 yards and two touchdowns. But, you know, he had a couple of really impressive throws. The one that stood out to me was a it was a throw to the corner of the end zone to... I'm trying to remember who it was. I believe it was Justin Allen. Not an easy throw. But, you know, he looked... he just His throws looked crisper. He didn't have the same kinds of issues throwing down the field and being accurate in doing it. So, while I'm not expecting them to make a change for the game next week... I wouldn't be surprised if Virgil had a shorter leash going into next week than he did coming into this game. So you're coming around. Because it was easy to sit back. You're and, coming around to Josh, I think, and who thinks he'll be being married by end of September. I was a little skeptical because I thought that that timetable was really accelerated. And, I mean, keep in mind, huge grain of salt that this defense was just really bad. <laughs> I mean, the whole team was really bad. And Al, like I don't think there's been any kind of swing in difficulty from something like Incarnate Word to Alabama in one week. So it's hard to glean too much from the game, but I mean it's hard to deny that they looked very impressive on both sides of the ball. All right, so we move on to the final game of the weekend, which had a lot of issues apparently. Broke my heart that I couldn't watch this game. All right, so here's the deal. Hawaii won 41-18 over Western Carolina, which was perfectly fine. We'll get to the game in a second here, but for those who are keeping track at home, it was announced a couple weeks ago that Hawaii games on Spectrum Pay-Per-View would be available for free on the Mountain West app in the mainland. Because last year it was not. It's like, okay, great. Everybody excited yelled, huzzah, we can watch Hawaii football at midnight, Eastern time. Well... We find out, we're looking, like, how do we find the game? I'm chatting with the uh, one of the uh, communication directors for the Mountain West. Well, the Mountain West app, it might be updated at the moment. Still not updated. The most recent news is, like, from July, which is a joke. Stadium had issues, as we mentioned, with um, the Facebook live stream because they produced that game. Ba- delivery issues with uh, being all glitchy and uh, pixelated. They announced, I think, Friday... Download the new Watt to Stadium app, only good for iOS, even though there's just as many Android, if not more, than Apple users. I know Apple's more seamless for getting apps on there, but you couldn't watch it unless you had the iPhone or iPod or iPad or whatever. Can't watch it online unless you have the app, which cuts out a million people. And apparently Spectrum had issues where, sorry folks, nobody can stream the game at all because, and I talked to our guy, um, our Hawaii writer, he believes, and I, I agree with him, that people were spoofing VPNs in Hawaii to watch this game free or attempting to instead of paying. Do you know how much it costs per game to watch Hawaii football? Isn't it like 40 bucks? Or no, something he like told that? me $70 per game. Jeez. And there's also an issue with it. I think this is more of a spectrum issue because there is a game last week. I remember vaguely seeing it cause I follow enough Hawaii people. One of the women's volleyball games got scratched from being shown on TV at all. And so he's going to write an article on it, but there's just catastrophic mess to be able to watch this game and nobody can watch it. But, you know, for those people that were there, I think that there are some things that they can be encouraged by at least. You know, one of the things that I talked about in the preview very briefly was, you know, I wanted to be able to see Diosmi St. Juice get it going. And he probably had the best weekend of any Mountain West running back. He had 202 yards on 25 carries, 
that's eight yards of carry and a touchdown. That's pretty good. And we, we kind of knew that Ryan Tuiasoa was going to be the you know the number two guy behind him, maybe a little more of a hammer than St. Just is, and he had a pretty good game as two. Uh, you know, 82 yards, two touchdowns, five yards carry. No John Rusua in this game, which may or may not have contributed to Drew Brown's overall line. Foot, he was foot okay. He was right out. around. Yeah, and I mean Brown was right around fifty percent completions, two touchdowns. Maybe a little disconcerting that he had two interceptions, even though it didn't really cost him all that much, um, because Western Carolina wasn't able to turn either of those interceptions into points. But, you know, they were able to pull away late. They racked up five sacks on defense, 14 tackles for loss. So, well, they gave up some yards here and there. They actually got outgained. If you look at total offense, you know, I think this game probably went okay for the Warriors. They're 2-0. and When's the last time they've been 2-0? and You know what? That's a really good question. I wish it's I had a long time. Up. I mean, one thing I think that I would want to watch going forward is the fact that, again, UH was really kind of penalty prone. And I don't know if it was quite as, you know, boneheaded as it was often early in last week's matchup against Massachusetts, but they did have 11 penalties for 104 yards, where, you know, maybe that accounts for some of the disparity in being outgained, for instance. So I kind of want to see them continue to improve upon that if they can. They're two and zero. They won forty one to eighteen. I I like that St. Juice got the got the ball going on the ground for his uh, two hundred and two yards. But the, my only concern, like I said with you, is that Drew Brown little sketchy. But like I said, without John Asura, that's a pretty big deal. He had two hundred yards and twelve catches versus uh, UMass last week. So Dylan Colley stepped up nicely with seven for one hundred four. If you have Kali and Ursa back there, this could be a pretty deadly attack. But overall, they're 2-0, 41-18 victory. Now, the only thing I want to see next is the Rainbow Warrior uniforms. And hopefully on my phone eventually to watch this game. That would be nice. Or Chromecast. They got UCLA next week, so I'll have to figure out how to get to Pac-12 Network once again. But yeah, that's, that's our recap. We did it. We made it week one recap. Excellent. Sounds good. Let me ask you this before we wrap up. We're doing our power rankings. Who would who would you be your top three teams right now? Oh, okay. Um, I mean, I would put Boise State in the top three for sure. Um, San Diego State, definitely. After that, I mean, I, I guess I would probably still have Colorado State because, you know, even though they got screwed by the refs, I don't want to overreact to their loss last Friday. So me putting Hawaii three over Colorado State is overreacting. Maybe, maybe I'm just gonna leave it at that. That's fine. I went Boise, San Diego State, Hawaii, CSU. I guess. And a distant twelve, UNLV. A, a very distant twelve. <laughs> I did not think my dumb tweet would get that much traction. <laughs> I put out a, fa- a power ranking. UNLV 12 and then 11 through 1 TBD and apparently people loved it. That was pretty good. I'm not going to lie. I, w- I wish I had thought of that. I thought it was cle- <laughs> I thought it was reasonably clever but I didn't think it would get however many retweets and likes it got but 
that's the way it works. So anything else we need to add? Because we have uh, games next week, another full slate. So week one's in the books. Week two's got a lot. I think lo- we're good to go, right? Week two's got a lot to live up to after a pretty wild week one. Oh, yeah, this is the week where it's like there's every Power 5 team imaginable. you got Michigan, you got Air Force. Or, sorry, yeah, Michigan Air Force. you got Alabama on the schedule. Uh, who else do we got next week? Let me pull it up here. you got got... Uh, Texas on the schedule. You have uh, UCLA. You have an, a Toledo team that can put up some points. Washington State, Arizona State. Idaho. It's a big weekend. Yeah, you lose to Howard and you're UNLV. You want you want revenge, particularly last year, losing to Idaho. So next week will be crazy. Starts Thursday with the FCS matchup. So thank you for everybody listening. Subscribe to our show. Blog Talk Radio, we're on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, we're on, uh, where else we at? TuneIn, right? Uh, yes, we are. Sure, find us on TuneIn. We appreciate everyone who uh, supports us on Patreon. We appreciate all those people who give us a few bucks a month. Not much we're asking for. I did put out today, if you are a, uh, I think, a three-buck subscriber, you can be in our power poll every week. I think that's a decent perk, right? You could, you could hey, you can skew the vote. You could put UNLV number one, and we don't care. We'll stick it in there still. Do not care. You can also vote for Hawaii in, in, ahead of Colorado State if you choose. That's what I did, and I'm not even paying for that service. <laughs> I'm just voting because I like to. Yeah. All right, that that that's our show for tonight, and uh, look for great stuff. We had three people. We had you. We had Anna. We had Pete at games. We'll have other people at games. Are you at Fresno games every year, I believe, home games? Uh, we'll see how things shake out from week to week, yeah. So you're a week to week. I mean, are you allowed to go to every home game? I should say, uh, or is it still week to week, um, permission wise? No, I, I think I'm in the clear now. Good. So that last year's fiasco is behind us. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. <sighs> too sensitive. Sorry, Fresno. Too sensitive sometimes. But that's our show for tonight. And hope you listen to it. Have a great Labor Day whenever you're listening to the show. And check us out. We're at mwcwire.com. And as always, yes, we're biased against your college football team. And stop recording.